Gandhi's is the mother, Himalayas is the father. One nurtures and nurses, the other provides and protects. Vanita Kinra. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week, and for those of you who have been continuing to join every week, I do thank you most sincerely. So this week we're going to get to um, our study of Central Asia at 10,000 BC, as well as get into the Indian subcontinent. Uh, This episode is going to be a little bit shorter this week. I've had a lot of technical difficulties this evening, um, and I'm going to make sure that this audio isn't so, um, (laughs) I guess, uh, low in volume. Um, I, I was having some difficulties even getting it to show sound waves on Audacity, which is what I use to record. So I do apologize if this one's a little rough. Um, I think there may be something wrong with my microphone, but I'm going to just kind of muddle on through and see how it goes. But um, yeah, let's just go ahead and get started. So where we left off last time, we had discussed Iran at 10,000 BC, or what is now Iran. And the numerous mountain ranges that kind of make up its geography. Now, once you get out of that area to the east, you get into uh, the Central Asia. And to the north in that region is uh, the Stans, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, places like Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Of course, um, these are all mostly along some, you know, a very arid region. There are some mountains, especially towards the west, or I'm sorry, especially towards the east. There are some um, lakes and rivers, but for the most part, this is a very arid region. And due to that, especially with the colder climate prior to this point in time, uh, this area was not all that well populated. I think um, people really didn't start showing up here until about 50,000 years ago, I think is the earliest record that we have. Uh, And that's, you know, that's very scant evidence. Um, I think it wasn't, I think, um, I I don't think there's really firm evidence to about 40,000. So there's a very big 10,000 year gap. But once we were there, uh, we then began to move further east, and they would eventually occupy several highlands, specifically the Tibetan Plateau. But uh, again, that's um, that's kind of stuff for the future. I'm going to get back to that region later. But um, yeah, the the people living in this area, they are. Uh, of course, nomadic hunter-gatherers, and the nomadic part is very important for them. They, unlike the other peoples in Asia, are having to travel much more frequently just due to the nature of the land they're living on. There's not nearly as much forage, but uh, kind of make up for that, there are a lot of different animals living on the plain that travel in herds. Of course, uh, further north from this location, mammoth hunts had been a big part, but they were still hunting other types of uh, animals, uh, things like uh, similar to bison or buffalo, except you know, the Asian version of those, uh, deer, 
and of course horses. And horses are going to be very important coming up later. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that again in the future. So I know that's frustrating to keep saying, but I really do want to follow kind of along as we go. But yes, this is kind of the the end point or starting point, I guess you'd say, of Central Asia's steppe provinces or steppe countries. Um, and this will be a very important region once uh, horses have been domesticated and travel becomes much easier, especially for uh, herding and pastoralism. There are going to be numerous steppe peoples coming in through and out of the area. But uh, let's go ahead and shift focus to kind of the um, the Indian subcontinent. Now, um, of course, uh, today uh, this region is broken down between uh, f about five or six countries, depending on what you consider um, the region, if you want to include Myanmar or not. But um, when we refer to the Indian subcontinent, we are referring to today um, uh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Bhutan, and parts of Afghanistan as well. But uh, generally speaking, so this kind of makes up, the, the subcontinent kind of makes up a, a basically four giant uh, super regions is kind of the best way to refer to it as. And to enter into this super region, or super regions, I should say, there are a few options available to humans, at least at this point in time. In the northwest, you have um, several uh, uh, river valleys, mountain paths. Uh, in the northwest, the mountains are very, very rugged, uh, but rivers have carved ways through them and the most famous of these is the Khyber Pass which runs from modern-day Kabul into Pakistan and this is a very narrow twisting passage uh, there are other passes though and um, many of them have had seen or have seen um, large number of people animals uh, going into and out of the region for many many region uh, many many reasons excuse me <clears throat> so, then, of course, you have to the north, you have the Himalayan Mountains, which, of course, house Mount Everest, the tallest peak of the world. Um, and that's where now, today, Nepal and Tibet lie, kind of in this region. And they both are, they both have, like, very deep connections to both India and China. But the mountains are so difficult to cross uh, that there hasn't been really much direct contact between India and China even though they both exist just on the opposite sides of these mountain ranges. Um, another factor to keep in mind is that because of the continued grinding between the Asian plate and the Indian plate you get a lot of earthquakes and there have been terrible ones. Um, though there is an interesting kind of point to point out about this because of the angle that the Indian plate smashed into the Asian plate at, the mountains in the northeast are rugged, but they're not nearly as steep. So that means that people from Southeast Asia 
in places like Thailand and Burma and Myanmar, um, they have a little bit better uh, ways to interact than the people in, say, China. Um, though the types of interaction they've had is different depending on ever you know depending on the time frame and who's in charge in each location now of course india has massive coastlines um, though there are very few um, good harbors that are you know secure uh, from the weather um, but eventually as people sail more and develop s different types of sails and boats um, trade has become much much easier uh, and you know people are crossing both the Indian Ocean in the west and the Bay of Bengal or sorry the Bay of Bengal in the east for uh, for thousands of years and uh, most of the people who arrive by sea um, have been merchants um, and sailors and there have even been some proselytizers from various faiths uh, so, you know, um, generally sea travel in India is was mostly seen um, as a positive, at least for most of its early history. Uh, that will begin to change, uh, you know, when we get to the European colonialism or colonial era. Um, and also due to the tilt of India, um, the western edge of the Indian plate has formed... Um, uh, a basically a very long mountain range called the Western Ghats and of course the eastern edge is lower so that's that's part of the reason it's causing that range uh, but there is also a coastal mountain range in the east um, but the eastern Ghats are much less um, uh, rugged I guess for lack of a better term uh, and um, in between the eastern and western Ghats, there is a there is a very large plateau known as the Deccan or the Deccan Plateau. So, most of the internal mountain ranges run west to east, um, and this has kind of led to um, you know some division between the peoples living in the area. Uh, this is this is one of the main reasons that. Uh, communications or divisions has happened between various groups living in the area but uh, because of monsoons and things like that um, a lot of those internal mountain ranges are kind of kind of almost closer to hills uh, but it does again cause difficulties when it comes to traversing them now and in addition to mountain ranges, there are numerous river systems that are very important to the habitation of the area, as well as, um, uh, I guess, civilization or the growth of civilizations in the region. Um, most of the rivers in India run from west to east. Uh, there are two big uh, major exceptions, though. One of those is, of course, the Indus River. Uh, it kind of drains uh, from the west uh, to the southward along uh, mountains in what is now Afghanistan and um, the other one is the Narmada River and that runs east to west um, a part of I guess the northern boundary of the Deccan Plateau. So uh, basically these mountains and rivers make four larger 
regions, or for, I guess four smaller regions of the, the Indian uh, subcontinent, depending on what you want to <laughs> refer to them as. Excuse me. Uh, so in the north, there is a flat plain uh, that kind of uh, encompasses the Ganges River. And then in the kind of the central part, you have um, the Deccan Plateau, which tends to be drier and more mountainous. And in the northwest, you have the Indus River, uh, which runs from the Himalayas uh, from the Himalayas to the Indian Ocean. And other than that water source, a lot of that region is very dry, just due to the mountains catching, you know, moisture and it getting frozen and that kind of stuff. Um, but this is actually a core part of what is today Pakistan. Uh, so keep that in mind. And of course, in the southeast, um, you have all, it's a very it's it's much wetter, uh, and this is very important uh, when rice uh, becomes a major agricultural part. So because of India's geography, you have a very diverse mix of both wet and dry crops. This is going to be very, very uh, important. Um, another important factor of living in India is the monsoons, which are hurricanes with just, you know, you could have every day for months just seeing a huge amount of rain but you know it is very vital for a lot of the regions in the drier climes to get this rain so it's it's a pain I'm sure it's dangerous uh, landslides things like that are very much a danger but to kind of live there you have to kind of put up with it um, and uh, now most of, because of continental drift, the Indian subcontinent is mostly in the uh, northern hemisphere, but the Trap of Cancer runs through the middle of it. So most of India is very hot for most of the year. Uh, I think the only regions that you might consider cold would, of course, be in the north along the Himalayas. So um, that's kind of the major features of the geography and that's going to be again important to keep in mind when we talk about all the kind of people and groups and kingdoms and all that stuff kind of rising and falling over the years um, they're very much at the the whims of where they're living it's it's a very bountiful place when things are good but when the you know when they're natural natural forces it can be very hard and you know states or civilizations that aren't prepared for that they can very much fall due to those factors now let's get to the people living there there are quite a few um, people that use the term Adivasi, I think around 100 million people, and that kind of means Aboriginal. And of course, if you were to go, you know, go there today, uh, or judging by any other country, that's the largest percentage of Aboriginal people in any country anywhere. But that term Adivasi is extremely controversial. 
Um, I don't. I don't think it's been around long. I think it was like somewhere in the early 19, uh, 1900s that the term was invented. Uh, and essentially, people use it to kind of advocate for uh, land rights. Uh, it, it helps them claim descent from you know original inhabitants of India who arrived you know tens of thousands of years earlier. The problem with this is that. Well, obviously, again, they're using it to kind of take a moral and legal rights over land. Um, and, you know, some of that was taken by outsiders. Some of that has been taken by the Indian government, especially when outsiders left. Um, but the the current Indian government, or at least parts of the current Indian government, they don't, they either and they have they have some points. Um, they don't want to admit that they are that the ancestors of the Adivasi were there before anyone else. Um, the the Indian government uses the term tribal, which I do think is probably a little bit better of a description, um, because a lot of these people do carry on a traditional lifestyle. Especially, um, there's a lot of people living in the forest. Uh, of course, the problem with that is it's kind of become a pejorative, you know, like, uh, he's a forest dweller. Um, so, it, it's a very it's very difficult kind of, you know, thing to deal with. Um, because it's very possible that the ancestors for non-tribal people, most of them have been in the region probably around the same time. It's just a question of where exactly and how much. Um... And, you know, they developed their own civilization. They just changed how they were living. They didn't continue that kind of <clears throat> hunting and gathering lifestyle. Eventually, they will develop their own form of agricultural and sedentary, uh, sedentary society. <clears throat> so it's, it's a very difficult kind of topic. And I can see points from both sides, you know, as, as most rational people can. In most of these situations, there are points for or against stuff. But <clears throat> regardless, the Adivasi are a very large part of the Indian population. But they are not all homogenous. There are different groups. Of course, there are a, quite a number of different uh, tribes. You know, the Indian government's right in that they are not all one one people. They are... They are a number of different people, and they all have either their own languages. Um, they didn't even use this. Uh, none of I think most of them didn't even have any kind of script until very recently, and there are some that still don't have their own scripts. So there's no written historical records on their end. Uh, of course, the sedentary societies, um, they of course refer to them, but you know it's always it's always kind of worry. Well, not necessarily worrisome, but it's always a difficulty if you just have outsiders referring to a people. There's, there's always something lost in translation. Um, there's always, there's always rituals or communication that, that you're not really getting the deeper meaning, or you're just you're getting the surface level events, and you're not understanding exactly why things or why these people do things or did things, you know, the way they did them. Uh, and that's always a danger uh, when you just look at a 
you know, an outsider's perspective of a group, especially when there are conflicts between those groups. But that being said, the Adivasis, uh, they do have, or at least most of them have, very um, fleshed out oral traditions, cultural traditions, especially when it comes to things like religions. Um, <clears throat> I think um, there's one group that basically they kind of recount the creation of, you know, of, they have their own creation myth. It's very distinct from, you know, Hindu creation myth or Buddhist creation myth or anything like that. Um, and we'll get to those people in the future, like, um, again, because at this point, they're definitely, you know, their, their ancestors are living in the region, but we don't, you know, we don't really know how they're divided. Um, when it comes to DNA testing, a lot of, especially in northern regions of India, it's hard to do because of the, the environment and how hot it can be. In certain places, there's not a very good record of getting ancient remains or older uh, remains to test. And of course, cremation is a major uh, factor for a lot of these tribes and not just tribes, but, you know, established faiths, Hindus, that's a very important um, practice for certain, or, you know, for certain sects of Hinduism. So getting ancient DNA is very difficult and testing that is, is hard to do. Um, there have been some studies, and I know there's a major study going on right now that hopefully they'll be putting out results. <clears throat> there's a number of things I'd like to see from that. Um, but we'll dive into that in future episodes when we get to kind of the um, Harappan or Sarasvati civilizations. <clears throat> but, of course, DNA evidence is not the only thing being tested. A lot of anthropologists and linguists, of course, they would like to kind of cross-reference each other and the DNA stuff, and that's always important. I think uh, any kind of you can use multiple um, multiple schools uh, thought to kind of verify and test things and, you know, see what, what pans out and what doesn't. It's extremely important. <clears throat> but um, the Adivasi peoples are um, they you know, they, again, they relied very heavily on forests. And there was, India was originally much more forested than it is today. Um, but, um, they, eventually they practiced kind of a form of slash and burn agriculture. Um, where they, or it's also known as Sweden agriculture. Um, but that kind of, that kind of changes the, um, the nature of the, you know, of the or the ecology of the area, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, and I know I've been saying, you know, this is going to be important. It is important, um, even at the time I'm referring to it. But it's kind of hard to extrapolate, um, lay out how it's important at this point in time, because again, a lot of this stuff we're just beginning to see, you know, evidence of it beginning. It won't. It won't really factor in until basically it's already too late. Um, at least when it comes to things like deforestation, uh, that doesn't help when you have so much rain. Um, you're losing these root systems that kind of absorb and lessen the impact of that. 
and the type of agriculture they practice is extremely damaging to the environment. So, yeah, it's, it's a very complicated issue. Um, but I hope when we begin to study specific groups, I can kind of get more in-depth on this because that's what I want to do eventually. But I do feel like it's important to kind of lay out who the big players are, at least at this point in time. Um, and that being, you know, that being said, it's time to go a little bit further south to what is now um, the nation of Sri Lanka, uh, formerly referred to as Ceylon. Uh, there are a people here known as uh, the Vedar, or Vedar, or Veda, depending on who you know, who's referring to them. Uh, I think they're also known as the Wanayalaito, and they are kind of the earliest group, or at least supposedly the earliest. There's a lot of kind of archaeological evidence with um, the oldest remains found in the region and the uh, you know, a very small number of people living there today. I think there's only about 7,000, you know, at most um, of these people still living in Sri Lanka. Um, but they have been there for at least 40,000 years, I believe. And they're, uh, they're, they're very interesting kind of um, makeup genetically. Um, they are similar to other Austronesians. But there, there is evidence that they have also interbred with kind of, um, if not a Neanderthal, a very close relative of a Neanderthal, uh, which is odd, you know, because that's so far south, that's not really where you would think of Neanderthal. Or at least their skeletons show some Neanderthal similarities. But, uh, yeah, um... So they're, they're different even from other Austronesians. Uh, and it is unfortunate that they, you know, that they, there are not that many of them. It's not, uh, but I will say it's not necessarily that they were, you know, kind of pushed out by everyone else. They have still been living their, their lifestyle. And, of course, there's always going to be some, um, some, you know, push and pull from, you know, hunter-gatherers and pastoralists and urban dwellers and that kind of thing. Um, but I think from what I can gather, a lot of their numbers, they were never a huge group. Um, and they were just kind of out, competed, I guess, for lack of a better term, with the um, the people, uh, live, the other peoples living in Sri Lanka. Um, they still practice some of their traditional beliefs and uh, very animistic religion I think is the term um, but they do have some elements that they've kind of um, co um, I guess syncretized with Buddhism and Hinduism uh, so they're they're definitely uh, one group that we can say for sure has existed kind of on their own um, and how they got to Sri Lanka is very interesting um, because of the way that the weather works in the area, um, it, it would be a very dangerous boat ride. It'd be possible. But it's also possible that they cross what's known as Adam's Bridge or Rama's Bridge or the Rama Setu. Uh, and what this is is it's basically a group of uh, shoals between um, the, you know, the tip of India and Sri Lanka itself. And apparently this will um, 
you know every few years or so that this that this uh, do the sea levels it kind of um, makes it easier to cross almost on foot really um, or it, it make it make it a lot easier so um, I think today uh, it can't be done um, but uh, there is a ferry I guess um, kind of running to the north um, of that region so um, yeah, I think uh, I think this is a good place to um, stop it. Uh, episode, yeah, it's almost been 30 minutes, which I'm surprised I was able to do it. Um, I do want to thank everyone for listening. I know this is a rougher episode, and I do apologize for that. Um, I'm gonna, I might have to get a new mic. We'll have to see. Um, and I hope I didn't get off on too many tangents. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Uh, again, thank you all for listening. Um, you can reach me at war at revpod at gmail.com or you can direct message me on Twitter. Uh, next week, we will be, uh, of course, continuing in Asia and we'll be moving uh, east uh, to uh, what is now Southeast Asia. Uh, so, And then we may also get to kind of the southern part of China as well. I'm, uh, I'm still working on the script. I'm about halfway through. I, I'm going to have to time it and see. But um, hopefully uh, there will be no uh, technical issues next week. And I will be much less frazzled and better rested. Because uh, it is getting a little late here in the U.S. So I do, again, thank everyone for listening. Uh, please reach out if you have any questions or any constructive feedback. And yeah, I hope everyone has a great day. Goodbye.